This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Canada's Prime Minister has indicated the federal government is working on getting Canadians an internationally accepted proof of COVID vaccination, what's been dubbed a vaccine passport. But Justin Trudeau has also said that domestic policies on a COVID vaccine passport will be left up to each provincial government. And that's where there's a disconnect in this province. Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, said on Tuesday, a passport for within Ontario has not been contemplated by the Ford government at Queen's Park. And then later in the week, this was confirmed by the Premier. But Toronto Board of Trade President and CEO Jan De Silva is pushing for the governing PCs to adopt some sort of vaccine passport requirement to protect business owners and their employees. While filling in for Libby Snymer, I was joined by University of Toronto bioethicist Dr. Kerry Bowman to talk about the challenges around vaccine passports, along with Jan De Silva, who offered more of her perspective. Look, this is about giving our businesses every chance to reopen safely, to remain open safely, and to avoid future lockdowns if we see another surge in cases in the fall. And I think it's worth just uh, clarifying what is intended by the term vaccine passport. If we look at what's been uh, discussed in Quebec, uh, what's being discussed in Europe, what's in place in Europe, a vaccine passport provides the following information. It either provides verification that you've been immunized against COVID, or for those people who chose not to vaccinate, it would provide a proof of a negative COVID test. So it's simply creating the conditions for confidence about the safety of going into a business for workers and for their customers. Jan, don't we already have proof of vaccination that we can print out from those emails that are sent to us after our first and second doses of vaccine? Well, I would say the challenge uh, is that we're then asking uh, restaurant workers and others to be able to determine the the uh, verifiability of what's being presented in paper. Um, we've seen other markets in the world where there's actually a black market for being able to get uh, proof of vaccine certificates, not saying that would happen here. But I would point to the fact that I think early in the pandemic, we missed a window to more effectively digitize contact tracing which would have given us much more uh, granular, immediate information about surges in cases and where they were being located, rather than having to respond with general lockdowns of the entire economy. So we really think the digital tools that are being put in place for international travel should be contemplated to provide the same tools and support for our businesses. If I could just continue on that, we've been at work since October. The mayor's been at the table, uh, large employers, um, building owners, and the downtown financial district. Pre-COVID, 550,000 daytime employees worked in that district, our largest employment zone in the country. 2,500 small businesses relied on them as their customer base. 
we've been working on what are the mitigations we can put in place to support sustainable, safe reopening when the time is right. We've looked globally. We've looked uh, domestically at solutions. The top two questions our members are asking us to answer are, what is the plan to keep my business open? And how can I assure my workforce and my customers that it's safe to come into my office? I want to go over to our ethicist now, Dr. Carrie Bowman. Let's talk about the ethics around vaccine passports. Do you see any challenges or issues, doctor? The, the first thing is, do we really, really need them um, is the question. Yes, globally, the situation is horrendous. Uh, there's no question. But the numbers are getting better in Canada quickly. When do we need them? Well, first of all, not all Canadians have even had the chance to be fully vaccinated. There's still lots of people waiting for their appointments. And, you know, we're creating something that will divide people. There's no question about it. It will create divisions. And boy, does this world not need any more of that. Freedom of movement really is a democratic principle. And, you know, it will interfere with that for some people. And you could say, well, that's their fault and da-da-da-da-da. But, you know, Free choice is part of a democratic society. Um, And look, people will safeguard it. No one's trying to snoop on anybody with vaccine passports that I can see, but there will be an element of surveillance to it. And how many times have we been told that your banking information is safe, your credit card information is safe, and it's not. Things get hacked. Um, So there will be an element of surveillance to them. And boy, oh boy, from a bureaucratic point of view, we're going to have two layers of this government, you know, sort of provincial and and, and federal. I, you know, I'm trying to go evidence based here and we don't have enough information to make such a determination at this point. Uh, We may in time ahead. I don't think we're there and because it does create ethical problems. University of Toronto bioethicist Dr. Kerry Bowman and Toronto Board of Trade President and CEO Jan DeSilva. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There are a number of different scenarios related to the pandemic playing out in Ontario. We have daily COVID cases declining, although people are still dying after contracting the virus. Most of these people unvaccinated. And there are ongoing concerns related to the more contagious Delta variant. In addition, the percentages of partially vaccinated and double-vaxxed eligible Ontario residents continue to climb. But there are still about 20% who've yet to get even one shot of vaccine. Then there's step three, reopening of the province, which began on Friday. I was joined Wednesday by Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Our discussion began with his reaction to confusing and false comments made by the chief scientist at the World Health Organization about mixing and matching vaccine doses, which is a safe and effective approach used in Ontario and across Canada. Yeah, she got a bit lost there. One thing we need to be aware of, um, I understand that she was talking there um, mainly about um, booster shots. You know, typically for us, it would be the third dose. But nevertheless, 
uh, what she said was essentially evidence-free. Uh, there was no evidence that would support her notions, and I think she just got a bit lost, to okay. be honest. She made a mistake. It's very clear what we're doing here is the absolutely right thing, and if you look at it, you know, from an immunological perspective, not only from a clinical and from what we have been doing for years, for instance, with influenza vaccine, it's very clear, first of all, that we have robust data for AstraZeneca and Pfizer, for example, but it's also very clear that Moderna and Pfizer are absolutely exchangeable. The spike protein that the body generates after it receives uh, the uh, the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, they're nearly identical, and it's clear that this works out. So there's no question, there's no doubt at all, and uh, the science table agrees on that, NASI agrees on that, and she was just a bit lost there. Well, it's good to hear you say that as well. Now, this approach of mixing and matching and getting people double vaxxed sooner, is it being embraced in other countries around the world or are we leading the way there as well? Look, we're leading the way that we first went just for the first doses, and we were then very quick, also thanks to the federal government, you know, who with hindsight really did an excellent deal with uh, with uh, Pfizer and with Moderna. Uh, and uh, then we first went without compromise to vaccinate as fast as we can, could with first doses. And the moment that, when we then saw that it was necessary to pivot because of Delta, we pivoted very swiftly and did the same thing with second doses. And now the only challenge is to get, you know, the last mile done. As you said it, we are at nearly 80% now of people aged 12 plus with their first doses. These nearly 80% would need to go to nearly 90% if we want to play this safe with Delta. Okay, so if we're talking about 10% of eligible residents that we, the goal would be to get vaccinated, uh, starting with the first dose. Who are we, how are you, uh, how are you talking to that part of the population? What is that part of the population and how do you get them to get in for their shots? Look, I think we have two different, um, uh, stories going on. There are, will be those who just will deny the effectiveness and the safety of the vaccines, whatever you're doing, and that's, you know, related to conspiracy theories, etc. cetera. Uh, you can't do much about that. This is just like suggesting the Earth is flat and uh, the moon landing never happened. Right. So, so we need to let that go for sure. But then there's quite a lot of people who just are a bit, you know, at the edge or have had some wrong information. There's a lot, of course, out there, which is dangerous, you know, stuff like it could interfere with fertility. It has been clearly established that this is not the case, for example, that, you know, costs us some uh, vaccine coverage in uh, fertile women. This is so sad, actually. Stuff like that. We just need to keep working on that, get the information right. You know, all of us need to be little activists again, talk to people. Whenever I bump into somebody, not physically, but, you know, just being close, also in jobs, I ask, first thing I ask, oh, did you already receive your second dose? Right. Just really just all of us need to do that. This is really a success story. We need to keep it a success story because we're dealing with Delta. People did so well. If we still would need to deal with Alpha, this would be game over. We could go back to a normal tomorrow and nothing would happen anymore. Since we have Delta, we just need to keep going. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, grieving a loved one lost during COVID. 
will continue long after the pandemic ends. A panel of experts will discuss. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It came as welcome news to those of you who have a loved one in long-term care. It was announced by the Long-Term Care Ministry on Wednesday, that's starting on Friday, two days ago, fully immunized staff, caregivers, and visitors would no longer need to present a negative COVID test before entering nursing homes in this province. Lisa Levin is Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario and joined me on Thursday with a reaction. I think it is uh, the time that is right to do this uh, because people have been shown that if they're fully vaccinated, uh, the vaccines have a very high level of effectiveness uh, and we need to balance that alongside uh, the needs of residents um, and you know, to to go back to a new normal uh, in their lives and also to free up staff in long-term care to be able to focus on care, not just on administering uh, testing when people come into the home. There are some other restrictions to be eased on Friday as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, I would put them into two categories. One, which is, um, you know, reducing the burden on paperwork of staff, uh, such as doing testing for people who are vaccinated. And the other is bringing fun and joy back into the home. So one of the activities that was restricted and whoever thought this would be a contentious activity is karaoke uh, and singing, um, excursions outside of the home and, um, you know, just just having social events, playing cards together, um, having people be able to, uh, you know, do recreational activities um, that before were not allowed can now return to the homes. And also, people can go on day or overnight absences. Uh, residents can go on overnight or, or day absences, regardless of their immunization status. Uh, so those are some of the things. Um, you know, there's a whole list of them. Some of them are pretty technical. Uh, but it will really help homes be able to uh, open up the doors a little more widely uh, to a new normal. There have been some outbreaks, Lisa, of the Delta variant in a few Ontario nursing homes recently, like in, in, in the past days, which have been brought in from the outside. How will these changes or are there any concerns as a result of these outbreaks with regard to the, the loosening of restrictions? Well, it's possible with some of this loosening that there could be more COVID coming into the home. But at this point in time, COVID seems to be a very different kind of COVID. Um, I believe people can get can can have COVID and be asymptomatic. We are. It's very rare that you see a death um, or hospitalization if someone has been fully vaccinated with COVID. And the government had to make a decision between weighing the uh, risks of contracting COVID and what that now means to those who are fully vaccinated with what it means to keep people living in isolation, separated from one another, um, and to have such a strong regimen in the home of um, residents being tested twice a day. So twice a day, not tested, but residents were getting temperature checks and getting screened twice a day in, until 
like it's still happening Mm -hmm. when so many of them have been vaccinated. And that takes away from uh, care at the bedside to do other things. So it's that balancing act. And I suppose there's no perfect decision, but it seems to me that uh, this is something that we need to uh, move forward with and that many of our members uh, support. Rod Phillips has been the new long-term care minister now for uh, a number of weeks, not very long. Um, Are you seeing a change in uh, attitude around long-term care from the Ford government uh, as a result of Rod Phillips moving in? Is it too soon? Um, You know, have you had any personal connection with him? I mean, how, how is the change being received? I think it's still really early days. Uh, Minister Phillips has to get up to speed on the intricacies of the file. Uh, he certainly reached out early on. Um, we actually, he's, you know, we're, we're going to be meeting him via Zoom um, next week, uh, a group of uh, us and our members, and um, we'll see what his perspectives are. But I, I don't see any huge changes in the direction the government is taking uh, towards long-term care. And with a new minister, you have a new sense, like a new sense of energy um, to transform the system, I think. And uh, I, I think that um, there's a lot moving forward uh, for him to to do. And it'll be interesting to see how things play out, but I, I think it'll go well. Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Nearing the end of the pandemic is a joyous time for many of us, but there are literally hundreds of thousands of Canadians who are still grieving the loss of loved ones who've died after contracting COVID-19. The toll of grief is also high for people who lost someone to something other than COVID-19 during the pandemic when funerals and in-person goodbyes were disrupted for everyone, regardless of cause of death. So just as Canada reopens, the bereaved are still struggling. Dr. Stephen Taylor is professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia and author of The Psychology of Pandemics. And Dr. Darcy Harris is a grief counselor and professor of bereavement studies at Western University. I asked Dr. Harris about her reference to this time as being like the aftermath of a hurricane. Well, I'm from originally from Florida. And as we started getting into the pandemic and I was uh, having people describe their experiences of, you know, what would it be like after the pandemic? I remembered that in Florida, when you'd have a hurricane come through, you'd batten down the hatches, you'd, you know, try to protect what you could, and you'd sort of hunker down. And after the storm went through, there was a sense of relief that it was done. And then you would open the front door and see all the damage. And it would take weeks to uh, to just recover from the damage, the trees down, the property damage. And so that was sort of the image that came to my mind, that the pandemic lifting, and we all saw the sense of, thank goodness, and then we open our front doors. And we're left with, you know, what is it now? What is what is normal going to be like now? Because it's going to be very different than what we've had in the past. So maybe some people who've lost loved ones to COVID nineteen haven't even fully realized their grief yet, Doctor Harris, or have been supported in their grief as well. And there's going to be a disconnect, I think, in timing for a lot of people that 
maybe their loved one died a year ago and people heard of the loss and and were aware of it, but there was no funeral, no real formal ritual. And now that you know people are coming out and and loved ones are starting to get together and to plan funerals. Uh, it's a disconnect between uh, their grief and, and being able to recognize it and the fact that life has moved on since that time as well. So it sort of uh, negates some of the ritual and some of the meaning that is attached to the social support that accompanies being able to support loved ones in a, in a funeral situation or even an aftercare situation. Dr. Taylor, let's talk about the loss those Canadians are feeling, the Canadians who lost someone to COVID-19. Well, there's going to be a range of reactions. Um, for some people, it's going to be more or less standard bereavement, and you know that is still very severe and take a year or more. And uh, as Dr. Harris pointed out, rituals have been um, disrupted during this pandemic, and rituals are hugely important. As a society, we have rituals around beginnings of things and ends of things, birth, death, marriages, and so forth. And when you disrupt those, people can't grieve properly. So there's that issue. There's also the issue of prolonged grief disorder, which is a severe disorder afflicting maybe 10% of bereaved people. Now, that's a chronic, severe disorder that requires specialized treatment. And we don't have the resources for that already. So my, my concern is that we'll have a lot of grieving people after this pandemic and we won't have the resources to treat them. The other important thing is the the lack of a common fate that some people experience during this pandemic. And this makes this pandemic very different from a natural disaster such as an earthquake, which affects just about everyone in the community. For this pandemic, some people are bereaved and some people are okay. So the bereaved people will be seeing other people in the community bouncing back and joyously re- resuming their socialising Whereas uh, that's going to make things a little more difficult for people in a state of of loss and grief at the moment. Uh, What about Dr. Taylor? What about those who feel sad for all of the loss, even if it's not personal as uh, the pandemic begins to lift? It it may hit us collectively about uh, the, uh, the loss. I mean, the tens of thousands of lives that have been lost in this country alone. And the impact of that probably won't happen until later on, until people get a chance to to settle down, resume their lives and reflect back on what has changed. And yes, they will be reflecting back on the, the many losses that have occurred, but hopefully people will also be reflecting on the way they've changed in positive ways during the pandemic. And that's a phenomenon called post-traumatic growth. And some people won't just bounce back, they'll grow as human uh, beings. So that's perhaps a silver lining in all of this. Dr. Stephen Taylor, professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia and author of The Psychology of Pandemics. And Dr. Darcy Harris, grief counselor and professor of bereavement studies at Western University. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. 
Jan Inguel phoned with her support for vaccine passports. We have to have a driver's license to drive. We have to have it. And actually this uh, certificate or whatever we can get for the vaccine, you know, is more important than that. And we should all have to have one and we should all have to show it. No doubt about it. Rose in Bowmanville has an idea for vaccine passports. I think that if we were to reissue the OHIP card and put a picture of the person like it is now and the address, which I don't think is on, I didn't look it up, but I don't think it's on, and then have the thing a different color so and pale so it can be read easily, I think it would be a lot easier to do and more recognizable. Everybody has an OHIP card pretty well. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jane in Scarborough, who shared her story of grief and loss during the pandemic. My mom died in long-term care a year ago, April. Uh, The day after she died was the day that we all went into lockdown and I had to come into work and lay off everyone at work after watching my mother being brought out of the home by men in hazmat suits and she was in a white plastic bag. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be with her. I couldn't see her. I couldn't see her for the month before she died. I couldn't see her body. I couldn't kiss her goodbye. And her ashes are still in my spare bedroom waiting to be able to go and inter her ashes in the family plot in Quebec City. And I have no idea when I'm going to be able to go. And so, yeah, grieving has been hard. Um, having to come to work, not being able to stop, having to take care of all those people that had lost their livelihood because we got shut down. It was just, and it still is horrendous. Jane, thank you so much for calling in and sharing your story. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416 416- Three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.